know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Hello everyone and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. This week we're discussing Vision and Family, Virginia, Viv, and Vin. What's this? Why does that song go? Sing out with vigor and vim? Vim? Vin? That's with an M. Yeah, vim. <laughs> this is Vin as in Vin Diesel. Or, or like, <laughs> I was thinking Vincent. short for Vincent. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Virginia, Viv, and Vin from the comic book series The Vision. And to help us with our discussion, we're joined by returning guest Todd Peterson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's, it's been a while. Be back. It has. Too long. Well, I guess not for our listeners. For our listeners, you were on last week. <laughs> exactly. Oh, is, is that the order of release? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Through the digital magic of podcasting. Yes. Nice. Uh, how are things with everybody? Well, I think Todd Peterson has a little news that our listeners may be interested in. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons I, I haven't been with you for a long time is all I do is write anymore. But uh, I'm really happy to say I got a big book deal. Two, two book deal. Um, with Counterpoint counterpoint press they're doing uh, a novel in stories in may of next year 2018 um and that's called it needs to look like we tried um which i love that title <laughs> it's really i'm so excited everybody's just really excited about this and and there'll be more coming and uh lots of fun press but it's it's really great to uh to have sold that book and then my agent sold uh a book based on like three chapters. So it feels a lot like some of our activities and hijinks we do here. Um, I was like, <laughs> a premise crazy. You can't buy this. I don't even know what the story is going to be. Um, but it's, uh, I pitched it as Fargo in the four corners. And so it's awesome. a little bit of a kind of a crime comedy about people buying and selling native American antiquities. And it's going to be a blast. And every time I show people in the know, like people from Canab and, uh, work up at Bryce Canyon. They're like, what you're talking about is not even extreme. Like the reality, <laughs> the reality is crazier and more nuts than what you're trying to tell. So it's going to be really fun. Awesome. And that's set for spring of 2019. So um, podcasting and reading comic books is a great break from uh, all this, <laughs> all this very uh, serious writing and fancy business. But it's really great to be with you guys. It's uh, it's really fun. I was just going through the old ones that we did to put them on my author site. And I'm like, our Halloween uh, antics are so awesome. They're just so much fun. <laughs> um, and they really show that we're, uh, as a group, kind of not okay in the head. 
I, that's all right. I don't think any of our listeners had any doubt about that one. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, a big congratulations on your books. And yes. I imagine we will have you back on after those get published, oh. maybe to talk about those very titles. That would be really fun. Well, as Todd said at the top, we are talking about The Vision, which is a 2016 comic book series published by Marvel Comics that ran for 12 issues. It was written by Tom King and drawn by Gabriel or Gabriel Hernandez Walta, with covers by Ma- uh, Mike Del Mundo and colors by Jordi Belair. And it tells the story of Vision, an android, or synthesoid, as they are sometimes called in Marvel Comics, uh, and his attempts to settle down into a more human-like life in a Washington, D.C. suburb with his android, or synthesoid, wife, and his twin android, or synthesoid, uh, children. Think the Twilight Zone meets superheroes meets a domestic drama set in the suburbs, with more murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, not than every domestic drama set in the suburbs. <laughs> There's a fair amount of murder. <laughs> Does that description uh, seem suitable? Uh, absolutely. I was I at a so. middle school band concert while I was reviewing the uh, issues, and um, it was upsetting to be in that context um, during some of the murder. <laughs> yeah. In, in, like, a middle school auditorium. Yep. That's exactly right with the... It was some patriotic uh, strains. It was very, very interesting combination of things. I think in general, we should probably be more upset with the murders we consume in our entertainment <laughs> than we generally are. This yeah. uh, Producer Andrew jumping in, because I'll probably jump in a lot on this one, because I, I feel really strongly about this series. It It's the type of series I want to revisit, but also can't, because it has intense moments that kind of elicit a strong like psychological reaction. For me, um, I feel the same way about Broadchurch. Like oh, it's yeah. really well made and everything, and I would like, like, it, part of me is like, I really want to rewatch that and like partake in the quality that is on display. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, it's really difficult to watch. Yeah. I don't want to watch it again, and so I've never watched it a second time. I would say, as a new parent, don't rewatch it right away. Okay. It's going to be a different set of emotions oh, yeah. as a parent versus a non-parent oh, watching I, that one. I couldn't agree don't more. Don't watch Church. The vision was really, I found myself profoundly moved and upset by this. And it, it's a comic. My wife is like, it's a comic book. And I go, no, 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 no. You got to read this. Like, I, this is, this is a story. This is something. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bigger than comics. I mean, there's a few runs there's a few arcs out there in the world that seem to me like they're bigger than comics. And this one is, oh my gosh. I, yeah, I, I got, I got upset. My family looked at me during the middle school band concert and go like, what? And I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> well, I was, I was uh, talking with producer. And it wasn't because you were, it wasn't because you were listening to a middle school band concert. <laughs> no, they're actually they're fairly accomplished. So it wasn't that. <laughs> okay. Um, right before we started recording, I mentioned to producer Andrew that this is probably going to be, for Marvel Comics, an evergreen title. Comic book publishers, uh, they, almost everything they, they produce ends up in trade paperbacks, but most of those trade paperbacks get one run, and that's it. Uh, but evergreen titles are ones that are always going to be in print because there's always an audience for it. And Marvel doesn't have as many of those as DC Comics has, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this will be one for Marvel. Nobody, uh, no argument. I agree. I think this is really good, and I think 
people will be reading it for a very long time. Uh, Joe, have you got some trivia for us? I do. Uh, the comic book character Vision was an Android member of the Avengers, who is an Android uh, Android member of the Avengers, or t- most typically the Avengers. And he was created by Roy Thomas, Stanley, and John Busema. Is that how we decided that was pronounced? Busema. Busema. Uh, the character first appeared in 1968, and he's been a staple of Marvel Comics ever since, though he almost exclusively has appeared in team books and not in solo adventures. This is, uh, I think there were like two miniseries that had him uh, as, as the main character uh, ever. And then this, this 12 issue series uh, was, was the first longer series, though it only ran for 12 issues. Uh, Vision, the character was created by the supervillain robot Ultron in order to destroy the Avengers. But instead he joined the team and turned against his creator. Uh, so non-comic book readers uh, who indulge in Marvel Cinematic Fair will know Vision from Avengers Age of Ultron. And he also appeared in Avenger, or Captain America Civil War. And, uh, obviously they tweak a lot of things, but he, in that, he's still a creation of Ultron that turns against his creator. So they at least kept that core point. Um, the Vision, uh, Todd Peterson, feel free to jump into this, cause I know you're pretty well versed in Marvel hit, uh, comic book history. He has a crazy comic book history. Is that accurate to say? Yes. It's it's a he seems to be a character who gets kind of reused a lot. Does that make yes sense? So, they, so yeah, they like each creator kind of comes in and says, "Yeah, we'll, we'll I can use do... him to do something different. We'll use him to do this kind of stuff." And and it was always kind of interesting, particularly when they started. Uh, you know, his relationship with the Scarlet Witch. I mean, which has sort of almost always already been part of what the story is. It like didn't evolve into it. But they, they used it to experiment with things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And um, for a robot, he has an ard- oddly large family tree. So to explain <laughs> some of this. And, and <laughs> when he's a family tree, that's complicated, too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we already established created by Ultron, a super villain robot. Uh, Who in turn was created by Hank, Hank Pym. Pym. So so Vision treats Hank Pym as a grandfather figure. Yes. Hank Pym, the Ant-Man. And, and therefore has connections to Hank Pym's wife and... Who is the Wasp. Yeah. So so he has his, his set of grandparents, then Ultron, his father. Okay. <laughs> but also... Uh, Vision, his neural net or his mind was copied from brainwaves of Simon Williams, who is a, a superhero slash actor uh, who goes by the name Wonder Man when he is a superhero. And so he he is partially copied from another superhero. I think it, it's interesting to point out Vision is probably much more well known than Wonder Man ever will be. <laughs> yes, that's oh, yeah. true. Wonder Man. I think Wonder Man, there could be a great uh, side story about him in a Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, story. They almost had him cameo in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 with Nathan Fillion playing him, though not really playing him. It was just, uh, it was going to be Nathan Fillion's face on tons of movie posters because Marvel Man is an actor, or Wonder Man is an actor. Uh, kind of a B-list superhero who uses his his association with Avengers to promote his own celebrity fame <laughs> and get get better roles. And I could imagine Nathan Fillion really enjoying that kind of a role in a superhero film. Side note, um, if I ever get a chance yeah. to uh, write comics... I would totally write a Wonder Man series. I would read that. It would be (laughs) such a blast. I I, I would love a good Wonder Man series because I don't really know that much about him. So, um, is it safe to say Wonder Man is like the Marvel version of Booster Gold? Yes, I'd 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 say he's in that in that range, except. It's not even as well known as Booster Gold. uh, Booster Gold is a DC superhero. It's all about fame and fortune and not as much about like the ethics of doing the right thing all the time. (laughs) 
so anyway, Vision and Simon Williams have both dated Scarlet Witch. And Vision and Scarlet Witch, in fact, got married and had kids, which you might think, impossible, he's a robot. However, Scarlet Witch has magic, and her subconscious desires magically created these twins uh, out of her marriage uh, with, with Vision. Uh, and so... <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Simon Williams, though, expanding the family tree a bit. So we, we have uh, Hank Pym, Ultron, Vision, and then Simon Williams' brain patterns. He's married to Scarlet Witch. They had twins. But Simon Williams has a brother named the Grim Reaper, who is a supervillain. Real quick, on the twins, who are part of the Young Avengers, there was also a period of time where they disappeared from existence, which helped perpetuate Scarlet Witch's mental breakdown and restructuring of reality and erasing mutants. When it got restructured... They were no longer her children, but the twins manifested again. They reexist. Yeah, they, they exist they, again. They, they reasserted their existence <laughs> in other families. Yeah. All right. Uh, so and and there was the period. Uh, absolutely none of that. But <laughs> remember the too, there's like... that one period where the vision was in an interim state. Is that when, when he was uh, white? Yes. When his yeah, white vision. Got reset. And and I don't know all the details of it, but. Yeah, there was a period before he had been, like, re-brainwaved re or something. All right, I, I just got to finish off the family tree, guys. <laughs> okay. I, I, I will restrain myself from yeah. another tangent. All right. Uh, Ultron has built a couple other robots. The other main one that we need to worry about for this is he built a second son named Victor Mancha. Um, and Victor Mancha became part of the superhero team, Runaways, uh, the team that we discussed a few episodes ago. So that is a that is the majority. There's a few other members of the family tree, but you'd think uh, a robot wouldn't have a huge family tree. But across what is this now? Fifty years in the Marvel universe, they've expanded that family tree quite a bit for the Vision. Um, more more than a lot of other characters, like Tony Stark <laughs> hasn't do, doesn't have that good of a family tree. <laughs> no, definitely not. I feel, I feel like Vision is all of the crazy of the X Men in one character. I yes. that's fair. I, I yeah, I can't argue with that assessment. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they they did, like, the entire soap opera, but just with him. Yes. Yeah. Um, if you are completely unfamiliar with the Vision, so besides being a robot, his superpowers are that he can alter the density of his body from being super dense to completely incorporeal, so he could pass through objects, or he can become basically indestructible. And he also can shoot a laser from a little gem in his forehead. And uh, about this particular version of the Vision, this 12-issue series, it won an Eisner Award for Best Limited Series, and Mike Del Mundo was nominated for Best Cover Artist. And these covers are amazing. Really fantastic cover art in this series. And as we said, this was written by Tom King. A note about him. He interned at Marvel and DC Comics. He interned at both of them when he was in college, I believe. Uh, And then he went and joined the CIA. And after working at the CIA for something like, I think, seven or eight years, he retired so that he could write... And he had field experience. I believe so. Like, like at uh, least non-domestic experience. I, um, I don't know that he was, like, out doing things, but he he was... Yeah, not necessarily field <laughs> operative, but he was abroad. Yeah. Uh, but he published his first novel in 2012, and then he quickly... That was a superhero-themed novel, and he quickly got snatched up by both Marvel and DC to write for them. And basically everything he's written for the comic book industry has been critically acclaimed. Right now, uh, he signed an exclusive contact, uh, contract with DC, so The Vision was his last Marvel work, and he's currently writing some series for DC Comics. Uh, Batman. Yes. He's, he's, he's writing Batman. <laughs> yeah, and Miracle Man. Just yes. another, take oh, another, like, Mr. obscure, Miracle. or Mr. Miracle, yeah, obscure, uh, 
uh, character that hasn't had a huge run and, and doing crazy stuff with him that the critics seem to be really enjoying. And I am not nearly as active with the current comics as I once was. Like, I don't go weekly to the comic shop, but I still, like, try and keep in touch with things that are big. And from issue number one of Division, I knew this comic was out there and everyone was saying something different's going on. <laughs> like, this this series is going to be special. <laughs> Yeah, that's been my experience too, and I'm less connected with the comic book world than you are, and I knew about this, so <laughs> it definitely made a splash. So, other, uh, other than Black Panther, this is the only p- paper comic I've bought in years. <laughs> you had to have the physical copies. <laughs> Not even Miss Marvel. I just really did. Yeah, well, yeah, I did. I did buy those. I got those for my daughter. I but, you like um, that one a lot. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. I, I wanted to throw one other thing. The Vision has an interesting um, literary side to him, too. In 2004, Jonathan Lethem had a short story in his book Men in Cartoons called The Vision. I think I'm getting that one right. And in it, it's about a guy who sees this kind of weird kid at school who, like, cosplayed as The Vision at school. And it was re- it was a, sort of this narrative about, like, figuring out, like, what this kid was doing being the vision. So it's one of the very few characters I know that has sort of bridged over and had a literary life of his own. It's a, if you've never read it, it's a very, very interesting, very cool story. Um, but it's not a comic book story. It's just about the impact of how this super weird character is being superimposed on a super weird kid. <laughs> um, and Lethem uses it to tell that story. And, and that was one of the things that fascinated me about vision. Like, he always seems to like represent some kind of really weird angle about comics. Uh, so I guess we kind of said like we all heard about the critical claim of this. I only read this like because uh, producer Andrew handed me his physical copies and said you got to read this. Even I, like I'd heard the buzz, but I wasn't running out to get them. But Andrew gave me his copies, and then I reread them uh, today <laughs> for for this discussion. Uh, what about you guys? When did you first uh, read the Vision? I'll take that, Todd. I read it r- right out of the gates. I was going down to my local comic shop and I was getting some pulls. I was getting, like I said, Black Panther to just kind of, I wanted to have a full kind of run of that and uh, pulling some stuff from the 52 reboots. I think that's what was going on. I can't remember, but I was getting the previews for my poll and I saw this mentioned in the preview and I went, what? And looked around and saw a little bit of the art online and said, I'm in. The, I'm in. I'm totally in. Um, and so I kind of started from the beginning. And it was one of those things that's um, like the opposite of binge watching. It was excruciating to wait <laughs> for the release date on this kind of stuff. Just terrible. I hate it. And so now I don't even wait. I, I just wait by trades because I, I'm impatient and I don't want to read them one at a time and wait. But yeah, that was my experience of having it kind of metered out in the very, very old and traditional way of just like... So I really felt the episodicness of these 12 issues burned a hole in my face. I was, I was angry. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Todd Mac? I, uh, like I said, I, I've been aware of this for a long time. I've seen the cover art and thought, man, it looks really weird and interesting. <laughs> uh, but was never interested enough in the character to really go out and look for it. Uh, but I was happy when we, when I saw that this was up on the on the docket, and I just read it over the last couple of days on uh, on Marvel Unlimited, and it's it's pretty good. I mean, 
there's a lot there's a lot of stuff in here that is uh like some of my favorite stuff to think about and uh so <laughs> i was really happy <laughs> and really surprised i didn't know i really didn't know what to expect uh and and the thing that i got was so much better than what i expected and uh so i was really happy about that I have the long synopsis, but before we get to that, I would just like to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And I will just note before I give the full uh, synopsis of this that um, so much of the power of this story, I think, is in the form of the comics and the way that... Um, like within a single panel, you're getting text that's saying one thing as the image is showing us another thing. And I can't really convey that in my summary <laughs> very well. I think you'll still get the creepiness of the overall narrative and some of the, the themes of the overall narrative. But the presentation of this is pretty key to understand the power and why every critic who looks at comic books kind of went crazy for, for this series. All right. Issue number one. In a suburb, a husband and wife are taking cookies to the new neighbors who just moved in. The husband, George, thinks this is ridiculous because they're robots and won't eat them. The wife, Nora, corrects him because they prefer to be called synth synthesoids, not robots. The narrator warns us that at the end of the story, one of the visions will set George and Nora's house on fire, and they will die in the flames. The vision and his wife debate the semantics of human phrases such as kind versus nice as they throw the cookies away <laughs> the twins begin going to a public high school so the twins are about supposed to be about 16 years old uh and uh i should say if you're unfamiliar with the vision every one of these looks like a pink robot with green hair uh the vision his wife and well i guess the vision's well but his wife and kids all have bright green hair and bright pink skin i'd say like very humanoid robots yeah humanoid robots but Still clearly not humans yes. <laughs> when, you, when you look at them. Well, mostly because uh, of their eyes, right? Like their eyes are yes, just Yes, there's white. no pupils in their eyes. Their eyes are just white, uh, white dots, mm -hmm. which makes it really creepy. Agreed. Uh, so the twins begin going to a public high school. One night, the Vision wakes up and wonders about his wife, particularly the unnamed human from whose brainwaves he based her neural net on. So we don't know yet who... Um, who, whose brainwaves he copied. The next day, Vision goes to Avengers Mansion to run some tests, and Virginia goes over homework with the twins. Suddenly, the supervillain Grim Reaper bursts in, and this is just out of nowhere. It just bursts into this home in the suburbs and stabs Viv, the teenage daughter, and Viv lies on the floor repeating, Mother, 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 over and over again. And Virginia beats Grim Reaper to death and then asks the children not to tell their father. So in issue number two, Virginia tells the vision. I feel just for the sake of the story, the Grim Reaper dies constantly. <laughs> <laughs> he may be back. Um, I think his power is that he will die unless he kills someone every 24 hours. I didn't know that. I think at Gosh. least I think that's been part of his story at different times. That's horrible. Uh, and he has a giant scythe for a hand. Yes. I had no idea that that was part of his power. I, I don't know if that is for sure. I feel like it at the very least has been. Okay. So in issue number two, Virginia... If it hasn't, then you need to be hired by Marvel Comics just to write that <laughs> one character. Because <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Vision, uh, issue number two, Virginia, so the Vision's wife, uh, she tells Vision that the Grim Reaper attacked and she fought him off and Grim Reaper fled. The Vision works to repair uh, Viv 
at school, Vin is becoming moody because of his sister's absence. He attacks a student named Chris who questions him about her absence. Virginia. This is, this is not an attack like when Virginia. No, this is like, uh, the, the, the kid is asking, hey, where's your sister? And uh, just in anger and frustration, Vin stands up and grabs the kid by the throat and holds him till he falls unconscious. It's not but, like, but then he him. lets go. He, yeah. Yeah. So then Virginia, the wife again, she receives a cell phone in the mail. And the cell phone has a video on it of her burying the Grim Reaper's body in her backyard. And then the phone receives a call from an unidentified number. Issue number three. Punk kids spray paint the Vision's garage door, but a very threatening Virginia catches them in the act. Uh, Vision then nearly kills himself to save his daughter, Viv, but is successful and she is revived. Uh, so by kill- nearly kills himself, he's letting all this power and energy run through his body, through his hands, into into some of her circuits to be able to revive her. Uh, we discover that the omniscient narrator that we've been hearing is actually, well, at least in some of the frames, is the Scarlet Witch's old mentor, Agatha Harkness, who had a vision of the future, and as she recites it, that vision lines up, or that prophecy lines up with the narration from the very first issue. So we get this flashback of Agatha Harkness receiving a prophecy, a magical prophecy of the future, and you realize that that's the narration we've been reading for the last two issues in issue number four the twins return to school viv has a nice teenage rom-commy conversation with chris the boy that her brother had attacked she likes to replay the recording of that conversation in her head that night virginia goes to meet the person who has sent her the cell phone video and she assumes it will be a blackmail uh, attempt and it turns out to be the dad of that boy, Chris, that Viv had talked with at school. This uh, Chris's dad, he doesn't want money. He just wants the visions to move out of the neighborhood or he's going to release the video. He says he was coming over that night when he took the recording to see if the visions would allow his son to change lab partners because his son had been paired up with Viv. Um, and then he heard the fight and he took the video of the body being buried in the backyard. And he says he's just trying to protect his kid, you see. And Virginia stands up a bit threatening and says she understands because she needs to protect her kids, too. Chris uh, hears the argument and comes downstairs. So he wakes up because he, he hears his dad yelling. And he comes downstairs. And then uh, Chris's dad pulls out a gun and shoots at Virginia. And she naturally phases her body to allow the bullet to pass through her without any damage. And the bullet then strikes Chris in the head and kills him. Virginia knocks uh, the dad unconscious and then stands over the two bodies. Issue number five. While Virginia checks on Chris's uh, dad, who is unconscious in a coma in the hospital, then gets obsessed with Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. And this, there's a lot of obsession with Merchant of Venice throughout the series. Uh, and meanwhile, Viv starts finding pictures of Chris in old yearbooks. A detective comes and takes Vision in for an interview because the Vision's son had had a confrontation with the boy who is now dead. Virginia tells her kids not to worry because everything is normal. And then she repeats, everything is normal, as she slams her fist on the kitchen table and breaks it. Uh, Viv storms out at this moment, and Vin turns to his mom and asks, if you prick me, do I bleed? And then we see the detective interrogating the Vision, and mentally the Vision is counting the 37 times he has saved the world as he's being asked the detective questions about this one murder. Uh, the detective asks about the whereabouts of each member of his family when the attack occurred, and Vision realizes that his wife was not home with him. But then he decides to lie and say that his wife and kids were at home with him at the time of the boy's death. Issue number six. George and Nora's dog gets out and digs up the Grim Reaper's body. 
but it gets shocked by a weapon in the costume. Vision hears something going on in the backyard, and he goes up back to investigate, and he discovers the Grim Reaper's body in his backyard. And remember, his wife had told him that the Grim Reaper fled and ran away. Uh, so this is when the Vision finds out that his wife did kill the Grim Reaper. The next day, George stops by to ask the Visions if they have seen his dog. And uh, Virginia says, come inside and let's look around. And inside the house, it is completely and utterly trashed, as though a very violent argument had taken place. Uh, Vision, in the basement, harvests the brain from the dog. So the dog died in that in that shock, but the Vision cuts out its brain and then builds a synthesoid dog for his children, and the children name the dog Sparky. And the dog has green fur. Issue 7, uh, we get the whole odd romantic history of the Vision and the Scarlet Witch broken down in flashbacks, and we learn that Virginia's neural net is patterned after the Scarlet Witch, with the Scarlet Witch's permission, though Virginia does not know this about herself. Issue 8, Victor Mancha, again, one of Ultron's other uh, robotic children, he comes by to visit his brother, Vision, and he stays with the family. He bonds with each member of the family, and one night, Vin goes to find Victor, and he discovers Victor speaking with the Avengers. Victor has been there as a spy, trying to find out if the Visions had anything to do with the violence that's been going on around them. Vin tries to run away to go tell his dad that Victor has been a spy, and Victor leaps up and traps him in some like energy field that he projects. Issue number nine. Victor loses control of this energy field that he is using, and Vin spasms chaotically. Vin's laser goes off at random, and it shoots through the Vision's house and lights George and Nora's house on fire. Vin dies, and Victor can't believe this has happened, and Vision finds Victor over, you know, with, with Vin's body. Uh, issue number 10, the Visions are under house arrest, and there is an energy field from Tony Stark preventing their exit of their home in the suburbs. Victor Mancha, or Mancha is in jail, being held in connection with Vin's death. Vision goes up to see Viv, his teenage daughter, and she is kneeling down by her bed. Vision, uh, she says she's going to pray and ask her dad if, she, if he will join her. And their prayer is, please let there be a God, please let my brother have a soul, and please God, let my brother rest. Amen. Vision replays a recording of his son reciting Shakespeare, though in the dialogue it becomes clear that his that uh, Vin really wants his dad to pay attention, and Vision just keeps saying, I'm on a call with the Avengers, and so Vin just starts reciting the play without his dad paying any attention, but the Vision has a perfect video of this moment because he's a robot. Uh, after watching this, Vision breaks out of the house to go seek revenge on Victor Mancha, who killed his son. Issue 11. The Avengers are assembled to confront Vision and stop him from finding Victor. Vision dispatches them rather easily. Virginia <laughs> tells Viv, uh, her daughter, that she, that Virginia was there when Chris died. She tells her exactly what happened, that the bullet was meant for her, but that Virginia phased and the bullet hit Chris. Uh, Viv does not take this news well, uh, but there's probably not a great way for it to be taken, really. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I don't know what the best best outcome of that was going to be. Uh, Vision goes, uh, after he dispatches the Avengers, he goes to Victor Mantra's cell. And uh, by this point in the series, there have been several magical prophecies that predict Vision going evil and killing everyone. So there's understandable concern about him preparing to kill his brother. But just before Vision can do this, Virginia appears and rips out Victor's mechanical heart so that Vision doesn't become a murderer. Issue number 12, Virginia drinks a chemical that will destroy her insides. So she's committing suicide, basically. And then she calls the police to confess everything. Uh, that she killed the Grim Reaper, that she was there when Chris died, that she put Chris's dad into a coma. But in doing this, she makes Vision look completely innocent. She tells it in such a way that it's obvious, or it should be obvious, that Vision never lied to the police. 
that it is completely her fault. And then Virginia dies in Vision's arms, and Vision agrees to keep her secrets. At first, he insists that he's going to tell the truth, but she makes him promise not to. Months later, Viv is heading off to school, and Vision goes down into his basement, where we see him building another robot, the end. Well done. Thank you. Uh, again, I think some of the creepiness is uh, revealed in that, but if, if this isn't intriguing to you at all, listeners, I'd say go read the series and see exactly how this gets portrayed. It's very, um, it's very noir. I mean, there's, there's like a, a, a deep noir element, I think, in this story, um, which is part of what I liked about it. Uh, but there, it, as you mentioned earlier, there's just a lot, there's a lot going on. And structurally, it's a really, really interesting story. Yeah, I think structurally, you can say like each issue does some really interesting things with the comic book form. But then also when you step back and see, I bet, I mean, I haven't done this, but I feel like if we looked at this, there'd be kind of a chiasmus that happens from beginning to end. Because I know some of the end was mirrored and some of the middle parts feel like they were mirrored. And I'd have to go in and look and see exactly when those mirroring happens. But I bet it kind of builds up like A, B, C, D, and then descends D, C, B, A. Yeah, I think you're right. My first thought after just mm, listening to the to the whole thing again, I just kept thinking, this is one of the very few stories I don't want a movie of. <laughs> don't sell this. Don't make a movie. Don't make a show. Don't do it. The, the medium is perfect. Sort of a little bit like Watchmen, like... There's something happening here in the way that it's on the page and the way that I could circle back. Like I would read a page and then I kind of wouldn't turn the page. I'd be like, I got to kind of go back yeah. and see what was going. So I found I kind of looped back onto each page a bunch of times before I was going forward. But it does a lot. Um, page reveals are a lot like the like the whole segment uh, near the very end uh, of um, issue six, I was gasping, even when I was rereading. Like, again, at the middle school band concert, I was rereading, going, ah! and my 15-year-old daughter was like, what, what? And I go, you're going to like this. Because it just, <laughs> I, I think that it, it used that page turn. It, you know, it really built to a thing, and then you get this really amazing reveal. Like when Vision is down in the basement doing... Uh, you don't know at first, like what he's doing. You're like, what, what kind of body chopping, you know, like Hannibal Lecter thing is going on down here. And, and it, so it does this really amazing job of presenting stuff and revealing it in this very controlled way. And I don't know. I just think it's that kind of an apex of the medium. It's just really good. And so structurally, I, I loved it. The story and, Todd said this thing. It's a lot of the things I like to think about. It was also a lot of the things I like to think about. Yeah. Um, I was going to say about the structure before we move on from that. My favorite example, and I like, I read it, and then I went and reread it, reread it almost immediately. Even though I'm like, I've got to read all of these twelve issues and summarize them very quickly. I'm like, nope, I've got to go reread this. The fifth issue when he's being interviewed by the police detective, and he he has said a couple times, like I've saved the world thirty seven times, and in this issue they show every single time. He saved the world. And these are like storylines from Marvel comics. So it's like referencing actual. I don't know how history. much research that must have taken for somebody to like, okay, how many times would you say the vision, specifically the vision <laughs> yeah. saved the world? But the way this gets presented in comic books, like what Todd Peterson was saying, I can't imagine this being adapted into any other medium. Cause what happens is 
you'll have in a panel, you know, the detective asking a question and the vision answering it. But then there's uh, like thought balloons of the vision saying, number one, the Sentinels strike. And then the detective asks another question and it says, number two, the Proctor War. Number three, Ultron. And sometimes it'll have a vision uh, or an image of vision like fighting these villains. And other times it'll be the detective's face. Other times the panel will be a wide shot of the detective and the vision at a police table. Uh, but you're still every time in every panel, you're getting a number and a reference to a comic book story. And mm-hmm. comic books allow you to do that where the reader can pause one narrative and looking at the next thing, like pick up another thread and then the reader does the work of moving on to the other thing in a way that film doesn't allow like the reader to take their own time in, in, you know, the readers or a viewer of film is just along for the story as it's been edited with this, a reader can take whatever pace they need to digest every single panel. And I can't remember, I'm sure it's been done as, as well, but I can't remember anything recently that takes advantage of the form of comics as perfectly as this 12 issue series does. That sequence you're talking about is amazing because it also uses color and form. So the police interview looks very kind of realistically rendered and the flashbacks to the different times are all in this very nearly monochromatic red and yellow. And so you can, you can see, even if you hold the book away from you, you can look and you can see the rhythms of the forward and backward motion. And that's just, you know, that's bravo, bravo. <laughs> that's It's probably my favorite sequence uh, in the entire series is that interview with the detective and, and the history that is presenting from comics, the narrative that is presenting from this story. And then also like the mental state of the vision as it progresses through, like he's going through all of this and coming to a conclusion for himself and then it's also being narrated by that omniscient narrator that we've been having to bring up another conclusion about the same sequence. And like Joseph said, impossible in film. Like if you are relying on someone else's pacing or timing of this, it, it, it won't work for everybody. And you I have w- to have some variety. Like you have to have your individual experience processing this one. I like what you said, Joe, about um, the, the, it, something about that it allows the reader to work and it is it is kind of work to read this story it doesn't feel like like hard work in the sense of i don't know (laughs) there's some some writers who write and you're like man this is hard it's hard to understand what's going on it's not that kind of work uh it's more like play (laughs) or or something uh where in the sense that it's a space that's created in which your mind is able to go back and forth and you know, flip flip ahead, flip back, read something over again, then read it over again, looking at different things. It's part of the joy of comic books that, uh, as you said, like you don't get it with other mediums. Um, and when it's done right, it's just so enjoyable. It's uh, it's a it's a pleasure to read something like this. But at the same time, it is it's it's kind of work uh, because mm-hmm. because you can't. I mean, I don't know that the human brain is capable of keeping all of those things. Uh, keeping track of everything that's going on at the same time, you it it begs to be read multiple times, and and yeah. that's awesome. It it requires engagement, maybe differently, maybe a different yeah. word than work. Yeah, like you cannot be a passive reader of this series and have at least like that sequence that we're talking about. Um, 
you know, you, you can't process it. <laughs> you won't always happen. If you, but there are comic books and certainly in other mediums, TV shows and films and even novels I've read where I can be kind of passive and just be swept along sure. with what's going on. But with this one, it requires engagement. Yeah, I like that. Um, and even like the other masterstroke of this issue five and this sequence where he's listing the 37 times he saved the world. It's not just like a tour de force of exploring what comic books can do as a means of storytelling. And, you know, th- that can't be done in any other medium. Like it is so thematically relevant that he lists every single time he saves the world. And I'm going to read off the way that this whole sequence ends. So you've just seen 37 times he saved the entire universe. And you're like, oh, well, this guy is a hero. <laughs> like, this is the definition of heroism. Like, the world would not exist without the vision being willing to sacrifice himself over and over literally dozens of times. And then it, uh, so he goes through all this and he says, um, let's see, it's not enough, is it? And this is as the vision has realized, oh, wait, my wife was not there when this attack happened and this boy died. Like, does this mean she's involved somehow? If I, you know, and if I reveal this, she's obviously going to be under suspicion. And so, like, we're getting this simultaneous, like, symbol of his heroism and then this realization that my wife might have done a terrible thing. But I don't know. I can't confirm that right now. It says, it's not enough, is it? In the end, I mean, those 37 occasions when he was all that stood between life and death, between everything and nothing, when he had been beaten, torn, tortured, and instead of simply slipping into the ground, as we surely would have, he raised his head one more time, stared one more time into the screaming face of evil, and said one more time in his simple voice, with no emotion, no care, I am the vision of the Avengers, I will not fall, 37 times, and all of it cannot redeem him from this small moment when he crossed to the other side, when he entered into the madness that was soon to come, this small moment, this small lie, and then we get his uh, voice saying, last Tuesday, yes, my family, they were all with me. (laughs) And so we go from this grandiose saving the entire universe, basically, to this very personal, small choice to lie. And it's like putting all those in the balance and saying the moral ethics that he's he's about to cross a moral line that he never has before. And it's never going to be balanced again. That's... (laughs) It's pretty amazing. It's so good. Like, it it's, reminds it's me of um, there's another part in the story when they're playing football, and mm-hmm. it was they're, yeah, they're playing football, and uh, Vin says to Viv, so the boy says to the girl, "That was entirely unfair. The ball was thrown by uh, by father for me." So the dad throws the ball, and the girl runs up and grabs it before the the boy can, and and then Viv says, "Now, brother, fairness." is a simple, mathematically determined balance, the lowest form of justice. It's just math. Fairness is is math. Preeminence, however, is the assertion of complex covenants over instinctual norms, the highest form of justice. Understanding and embracing preeminence moves us closer to humanity. And, like, I feel like you could spend a, a, a year... Like that, that is a college course, like fairness <laughs> to preeminence. It? I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing piece of writing. And, and the, this is another one of the great things about comics and superhero comics, especially is like there's these kids flying in the air, throwing a football at each other. And, the, and this is the conversation that they're having. And it's, it's really kind of hard to wrap my brain around. But, um, but this question of, and, I mean, this is a this is the question that we've we've touched on a million times over the course of 150 episodes <laughs> of this podcast about redemption and what redeems you, a- and 
it seems like it's making a really strong argument for this is not a mathematical balance and that there are some things that by their nature weigh more or something than, than other things and that it has to do with covenants. And it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to just kind of set your mind reeling. This robot, I've been thinking a lot about robot stories, you know, in a lot of ways because Blade Runner uh, 2049 and just uh, a friend of mine is a children's book illustrator and he's doing some stuff on robots and, and just we've been having these conversations and the thing that's amazing about robot stories is that they're really not about robots. They're really about people. Um, but using a robot to help us sort of get outside of ourselves and to kind of create some sense of foreignness in the way that we look and at and understand human interactions. And that's what I keep seeing over and over in the vision. Like with the two scenes that you guys both just talked through, it's not simple stuff like, like data episodes of Star Trek at its worst is <laughs> just this sort of, this sort of cute way of, um, living in data's literal world. This is so much more sophisticated than that at almost every turn. It's not just cute because they're like, um, we do not understand stuff. We are trying to figure out stuff. We are trying to, um, you know, figure out the world. I guess, you know, like, th- uh, what was that? Uh, third rock from the sun, right? The aliens come and they're, and they're trying to live this life. Uh, John Lithgow and Jane Curtin and all the kids and they're trying to figure it out. This is not like that. Like they're not observers. They are trying to live the life of people. But at a and deeper really level than hard. most people engage with. Right. Because, because they're, they're constantly reflecting, I guess. Yes. Like they, they have to try to live life as, as people. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not natural. So yeah, everything is an intentional act. There's, um, I think a really good example of this. There's a time when they go out to eat. And they go to the restaurant and Vision tries to explain to the waiter, like, uh, how long is it? Like, we're going to sit (laughs) here for a normal amount of meal time. And then please bring me a check for the normal cost of a meal. But you haven't eaten anything. Please bring me the check for the normal cost of a meal. (laughs) And then we will pay it and we will leave. (laughs) Even though they're not going to eat anything. And that's mirrored when uh, later after everything has happened and it's kind of in the denouement part of it. um, He's like, you didn't take a lunch. And he's like, well, dad, I don't eat. And it's like, well, but the other kids take a lunch (laughs) yeah and all all of that oh my gosh but again so much of it is so plain there's this there's this sequence uh and and it's mostly in the writing that's um hmm, i think it's in the 12th issue where it's just sort of talking about the other people who are living in the dc suburbs and it's uh, most of the Vision's neighbors worked downtown and they talked often about the traffic on 66 or Lee Highway. On the weekends, they tended to stay in Virginia, though they often lamented that they should go into the city. The museums are so nice and the kids would have a great time. A few of them were from the area originally. Most of had moved to D.C. after college and worked for Congress or the president and they made nothing and they lived off nothing. But that was unimportant. They were young and they wanted to save the world. Eventually, they met someone and fell in love and had children. With bills to pay, they left their small government jobs. They became lobbyists, lawyers, and management managers. They moved out to the suburbs for the schools. They made compromises that are necessary to raise a family. And in that sequence, I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. And it's, <laughs> it's using both the superhero 
and the robot story to again tell us the stories about ourselves and as someone whose kids are getting older you know i just think about that too like what am i doing or what do we all have to do to make family life possible you know what kind of compromises and one of the women uh at my press just was tweeting about how she's like oh my gosh being a working mother has caused all kinds of crazy things in myself i get embarrassed sometimes when i run into people who knew me pre-children I mean, how's the superhero comic supposed to be getting us to those places? And that's what's <laughs> genius about this is it's re it's, it's about real stuff where there's a lot of comics and comic movies that have made that failure that they're not really about people. So these robots are, I, are real to me. I don't know. <laughs> how, how familiar are you guys with the, the first, um, robot story, like the origin of robot that isn't it, uh, is it a checkoff? No, it, no, it's, it's a, a it's a check uh, play. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, Rosum's Universal Robots. Yeah, and um, so spoiler for anyone, you know, looking back at like an almost hundred yeah. year old play from the Czech Republic. Um, <laughs> but well, I guess that maybe was next on my reading list. Man, are you kidding? Me? But um, <laughs> like the 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 word robot is I I I I lived in Poland, so I speak Polish, and and it's the same root um, in Polish. It means worker. Like it's it's from the root for like to do work, and so in the play, they create robots which are workers, um, essentially slaves, um, but they're manufactured so they don't feel bad about it, and the play culminates in the robots killing all the humans, overthrowing the populace. So so their fear of you know robots taking over that's the original robot wow. story. <laughs> like that is, that is story number one. Like Asimov didn't invent that or anything. It's that is story number one from robots, but um, it's because they wanted humanity. Like they wanted to be what humans were. And so that's always been the story from day one of robots is an opportunity to look at um, fighting for being human and what it means to be human. And, and so like, I know in that story and I, I've never read it or seen it, but um, I know the story is about the, the robots uh, take over, they kill almost all the humans, and then they, they have, uh, I think, particularly one scientist left, and they say, make us human. Like, like resolve the, f- the finality of it and, and help us be what we want to be, which is mm-hmm. essentially human. Um, and I, I don't know how it actually ends, but that's their goal is, like, humanity had it better than us. We want that. And so the story with robots has always been looking at a way to to deconstruct um what is being a person you know what is what is humanity and there's always also that um that tension of humans being uncomfortable with robots getting closer and closer to <laughs> to them um i know one and of it's the probably because humans are uncomfortable trying to think of what that means for themselves yeah right. one one of the first film depictions of robots is metropolis i don't know if that's the very first but it's one of the earliest I mean, prob- and it could very well be the, and in the that earliest. there's a robot that looks a lot like c-3po but th- there's a moment where the robot um gets into this machine and there's a woman on the other side of the machine and they the, the robot takes the form of this woman now like so there's all the zapping and these special effects and then it's now the woman the robot looks exactly like this woman goes out and replaces her and becomes like an evil doppelganger of her and so there's this fear of replacement by 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 robots is definitely a tension that seems to permeate robot stories as well one thing that i love about about vision and his family is um as they're trying so hard to be human uh they have to accept um absurdity and (laughs) and and the the illogical nature 
of human existence. And um, there's this great conversation between uh, Vision and Virginia in the kitchen at the very beginning when they bring the the neighbors bring the cookies over and she says that was kind and he says no that was nice and then they have this <laughs> this this uh little back and forth about what that means and um he says the pursuit of a set purpose by logical means is the way of tyranny this is the vision of my creator of ultron the pursuit of an unstop uh, of an unobtainable purpose by absurd means is the way of freedom this is my vision of the future of our future do you see <laughs> And then she says, uh, yes, I see. Uh, let them be nice then. They seem nice because it's absurd. What they did is, uh, <laughs> is absurd. And it's, it, it's, it, I, there's something, um, so real in that, in that, that I, I think if you take a step back and look at your existence, um, there is in everyone's life a healthy dose of absurdity. <laughs> There's also a healthy dose of um, reaching for something that we all probably know is um, unobtainable, and yet, uh, and yet we have this faith that you know things are going to work out, and and that that applies on a million different levels. It applies on our plans for a day <laughs> and how one day is going to go, and it and it and it applies to our plans for. A lifetime or an eternity, <laughs> and uh, I think it's I think it's amazing um, how they're able to capture that in you know three panels and you know a guy a, a, ro- a robot man holding a robot woman's hand. It's like man, this well, is really uh, good. Supporting my my belief or my my feeling that there's a chiasmus happening in these twelve issues that I'd have to get again I have to go and break it down a little more clearly than I have. Um, but one the final conversation between Vision and his wife is about it includes the debate between the words nice and kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know she says because of these visions or or these prophecies, it's hard to say these visions <laughs> when we're talking about the vision. Uh, but these prophecies that you were going to murder like once you start down the path of killing, you were going to destroy the world um you know she says well i by killing victor i stopped you from doing that and she says uh you saved the world 37 times i saved it once it 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 was nice this is uh, she's dying because she drank that chemical and vision says no my love it was kind and then and then she dies a moment later but there's this you know that that debate that's from the very first conversation is is echoed in their very last conversation as she's dying and gets further echoed in uh viv's conversation with wanda at the very very end uh where she says parents sacrifice their lives for their children then children become parents and sacrifice their own lives and so all is sacrificed and nothing is gained life then becomes the pursuit of an unobtainable purpose by absurd means which is which is an exact reflection of the conversation earlier uh and may seem really like bleak, but for some reason it doesn't to me. Uh, and yeah, it, that that feels more hopeful than <laughs> than so much of this series. That's the transformation I think that this comic does. Is it could be, it, it just could be nihilistic, but it's not. I mean, you know, when they're praying and they're saying they're probably, it doesn't look like there probably is a god, but I'll pray anyway. And it doesn't even look like he probably anybody has souls, but we'll do this anyway. I mean. Yes. So, so in making these choices, it's turning away from what's really, really common in the kind of postmodern condition is it's all absurd. Therefore, don't try. 
I think that this comic is saying it's all absurd. And so let's, I don't know, let's double down. We have to try. <laughs> yeah, that that scene, I mean, the, the issue five thing with the structure and the 37 times saving the world, um, like structurally, it's, I mean, it's really great. There's a lot, there's a lot going for the story at that point. But I think my favorite moment in the story is that prayer uh, with, I think I think I cried when I read that prayer the first it's time. So good. Like that prayer sequence here, where she she has the conversation with him and then it, like she asks him to kneel down with her. Like she is deciding to right. say this prayer regardless of of whatever his input is on the matter. Well, and also the echoing cuz I only read her part when I recited the prayer in the in the summary where it's like uh you know, let there be a god, let my brother have a soul, but then you also get vision echoing it, but he says, Let my son have a soul. Yeah. And like so you get the my brother and my son echoed mm-hmm. on the line. So good. But here's the thing about that. Uh there is a show called Humans. Have you have any of you seen Humans? I have not. You've okay, told me it's to put on on my you're list not talking about inhumans, I have are not, you? Uh, gotten there. No, I'm talking about <laughs> humans. It's on Amazon Prime. There's one season available for free, and then I think you can buy the other season right now, but I've only seen the first season of this. But it was released in 2015, which is when this story was written, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think the first issue has a cover date of 2016, but that means it was released actually in 2000, uh, 2015. It would have been like there's usually like a three month lag almost mm-hmm. between the cover date. So I don't know. I mean, you could do the math probably and figure out who who was reading who, maybe. But there's a scene in Humans where a not in in Humans, but in the <laughs> in the in the TV show Humans. Where, uh, it's, it's these people in England and they, it's a sort of near future and they have, um, androids that look like humans. And there's a small group of them that were, they were like seeded with artificial, a, a, a higher form of artificial intelligence that makes them feel human. They have feelings and they have, um, desires and they're trying to be human. And if the, if the corporation finds them, then they will have their memories wiped and, uh, be recycled or something. And, um, and there's one of them who is kind of the most, one of the most human of this subset of androids. And there's a scene where he's in a church and he's praying and he says, God, I don't know if you're there. Seems unlikely, but if you are, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's the exact quote of, I mean, it's the exact same scene. Except, and, and when I saw that in the show, I, I got chills and, you know, I almost lost it. I mean, it's, it's so beautiful and, uh, really well done. But what's done in vision is even better <laughs> because the dad is there and there's this, there's this kind of sweetness, uh, in the way that, um, the child is leading the father that doesn't make the dad look like a dork. It just, it, it's just, uh, it's just kind of amazing what's going on there. And, and it is this, uh, we don't know, but we're going to try and we're going to try really, really hard. And, uh, and that is super hopeful to me. And, but that's, that's my favorite moment from the, from the story. But man, if you haven't seen humans and you really like this kind of stuff, then you should go and watch humans because it's really good. To have something contemporary doing this move is amazing. I mean, you can imagine. I don't know, something coming out of the 19th century where this would be fine and comfortable. But after so much intervening time where it's just sort of out of fashion to have something earnest and unironic. Yeah. Like that scene is, is a really, really 
bold move. And that's what blew me away more than anything is like, okay, first off, here's a comic. It's also, I think, and I'm going to argue, it's as good a novella, I guess, as anything that I've ever read. But it's also contemporary, absolutely contemporary. And I don't know very many writers who would ever even touch this kind of thing. In in contemporary writing, it's so... It's out of vogue, unless it was going to be, you know, done with some tinge of irony or some tinge of the sense of the postmodern. But it's not. It's absolutely straight ahead, and I don't, I, I don't even think it's inflected by. It. And I, I loved it for that. Respect. It's so much easier yeah. to be nihilistic. <laughs> it's so much easier to be nihilistic or to be naive, and I and and this story manages to walk this tightrope between both of those things and saying Mm -hmm. like yes life it 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 captures the spirit of noir in that uh noir is about just like the crazy darkness of life and how a character is kind of going along trying to be a regular person and then something wild happens and they get sucked into this vortex of of darkness and grittiness and uh and usually ends you know in death and sadness uh, and there's a, there's certainly element, a, a strong element of that here, but there's also this element of hope and neither one really, uh, really overpowers the other. You, you end with this feeling of yes, life is hard. Yes, life is unpredictable. Yes, most of what we do is absurd. And yet we will continue, uh, having faith and, and trying really hard even though we're not really sure exactly what's going to happen because it feels like the right thing to do. And it feels like the human thing to do. Like it feels like we're being most authentic or sincere to our humanity when we're really trying hard and not just, you know, throwing everything out the window because life is crazy, which is easier. Uh, Earlier, Todd Peterson mentioned like there's definitely elements of this that are postmodern, but a huge aspect of postmodernism tends to be um, that kind of cynicism, like embracing the absurdity to acknowledge that there's no point. (laughs) And this embraces the absurdity and they have like discourses and dialogues about absurdity and uh, the lack of meaning that human life can have, but it doesn't land there in the end. Like, like, uh, I I think Todd Peterson, you said there's the, an elevation (laughs) at the end that kind of lifts it out of, um, that, uh, that, that cynicism that can pervade so much postmodern literature. Indeed. I was thinking even, even deeper than this. It's easy to say this is vision story. I don't, I'm at a place where I feel like it's Virginia. And I'm really tracking with her most closely on this read because, you know, she's of course created her neural net is Wanda's and, and, and for any long time reader, you know, Wanda's neural net is going to have some right. issues. That, that was a bad <laughs> idea. Right. And so, yeah, you can see that, that, it, that the, the instability in the Scarlet Witch and Wanda is inherited in this. And yet like the oldest narrative, you could go back and see these are prototypical characters like Adam, like Eve. And if Vision is representing this kind of Adam character who is kind of steadfast, and I mean, I'm thinking about like Miltonic Adam, 
versus Eve going, hey, look, what I got to do, I got to save everybody and it's going to be heroic and it's going to involve self-sacrifice and it's going to involve me kind of maybe falling to smithereens, you know, the whole original sin thing that she's making this movement in order to kind of preserve everybody and move them forward. I mean, Virginia is a much, much deeper character than I ever anticipated on the first read. And I bet you if I go in and I do a third read and really focused on her, I'd come out with more stuff. I mean, there's so much going on with her language. There's so much going on with the way that she's fragmenting over the whole 12 issue arc. I mean, by the end, she is in pieces. She's like not a whole entity at all. Um, before she does the final acts that kind of save and rectify everything. I've had this page open and been trying to, to find the right opening. And I think this is a perfect moment. It's uh, when vision is holding her body after she just died. And it's one of the, they don't overuse the full page spreads in this. And this is one of the full page spreads. Like that's, that's not Tom King style. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't write single page spreads yeah. very often. Vision sitting on a couch in their home, holding his wife's body. And the text says, Virginia did the right thing or she did the wrong thing or she just did what everyone does. And that's it. <laughs> but I think that that idea of, like you said, going back to some prototypical early stories and this idea of Eve and original sin and doing the right thing that can be the wrong, you know, the, the right thing can be the wrong thing or the wrong thing can be the right thing uh, simultaneously. It, it's, I, I, I think you're definitely onto something, Todd. If, if, if this is about, if this couples up with that thing, like about their neighbors, then this is really trying to say, yeah, there's some robots. You understand that. But we are them and they are us. I mean, in Pogo style, I guess. I think that we're supposed to say these characters are archetypical. What I don't know yet is what kind of archetype it may be a new kind of archetype. Um, a guy that I teach with, um, Kyle Bishop, and I've had long conversations about Frankenstein and saying that Frankenstein may be one of the new prototypical myths. Like, Instead of going back into the deep, deep stories, that Shelley's story has spawned its own series of things. And in, in this, there's so much of that. The, the there was a being who was created. That being has got very, very tenuous relationship with his creator, um, fighting against the creator, whatever, asking questions of the creator, wanting to kill, destroy, etc., being deeper on the inside than we give him credit for. All of these things that are wrapped up in that Frankenstein narrative that have been repeated over and over and over again. Philip Dick. Blade Runner, uh, Ex Machina, um, all of these other variants of it. This is very clearly an inheritor of that. If I was ever to teach some kind of massive course that says, let's do Frankenstein and its variant narratives, I would have this in there. And I would ask students to say, what can we find from these prototypes? In what way is, I don't know, Pym, Victor Frankenstein, in that he's created these, these things that cause all kinds of trouble and ask questions of it and, and try to reconfront their creators and all this kind of stuff. But then if I'll go one more step with this, this may be that, but it may also be the Frankenstein myth approaching like the technological singularity. Like what happens when you get a self replicating intelligence like we see with vision and where this story leaves us with, you know, cause he makes his wife, he makes his kids, he makes his, dog he makes his whatever's this new thing he's making 
this is the kind of question that the singularity <laughs> asks. Like, what are we going to do when technology is self-replicating? I, I don't know. I think it's there is too much in this for one episode. <laughs> There's way too much. You're talking about myth, and um, I mean that was what you just said is awesome. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about um, Mercy Eliad and like the myth of the eternal return and uh, his idea that. Um, the history of society is uh, you have a group of people and they establish a society. When they establish a society, they set a pole in the, in the ground and they say, this is the, this is the middle of the universe. So it might be a tree or it might be a sacred rock, or it might be, you know, a temple or something that they build. And they say, this is the center of the universe and we're going to organize our society around this thing. And then, and then they do and society builds and builds and builds and it becomes more and more and more rigid around that thing until you find uh, some subset of that people who no longer feel like they fit in in this society because of its rigidity. And so they break off and they move into chaos and they go and, f- and form a new society. And they, they move through chaos for a while and then eventually they set a pole in the ground and they say, this is the center of the universe and we're going to build around this thing. And then they build that and then their society will become more and more and more rigid over time until somebody feels like they need to break out of that uh, and then they'll move into chaos and then they'll go set a pole in the ground. I feel like Vision goes through that entire process as a character <laughs> in which he <laughs> he's formed out of rigidity, right? Like this, this logical, I'm a thing. And then he says, no, I'm going to be human. And being human is accepting chaos. It's accepting the absurdity and the unobtainableness of this thing. And so he willingly breaks away from this rigid thing and he moves into chaos and then somewhere through that process he's starting and and, and we don't see i don't think it, it, i mean it's not a manifesto it's not a religious manifesto or a spiritual manifesto it's like a human manifesto in which he says i'm gonna stick a pole in the ground and the pole in the ground is uh i don't know something like we need to have faith we need to uh you know, try hard <laughs> and we need to try it hard to do the right thing. And, and, you know, that's, that's this pole that we're going to, we're going to build around. And there's, I mean, there's like t- tentative spiritual religious things going on. Uh, but I feel like he's, he's like moving through that process through this story, which is another, I mean, it's just another layer, another way to think about it, but something that I liked. So I, I've edited several essay collections on superhero comic books, and I tend to do like a character across their entire existence. So like my essay collection that I edited on Superman has an essay that's focused on like Superman stories from World War II, and then Superman stories from the Cold War, Superman stories from the Vietnam era, Superman stories from post 9-11, and so on. I feel like there should be an essay collection just on these 12 issues of oh, Vision. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like this is, I, I took a, a course in college that was, um, it was a it was a multimedia course, and we had like one section that was about comic books. This is the type of comic book that should be in there with Mouse and, uh, and and you know like the canonized, um, you know uh, comic book text, comic book as, as literature, um, kind of things. Um, I I have one thing that I have been I've been thinking about it since the first time I read through this, and I think you guys have finally helped me, like come to some sort of conclusion and it has to do with the um 
the vase that's not a vase. Oh, okay. Um, that comes up in the first um, issue because it's it's presented. So in their house, they have all these gifts from Avengers and superheroes, and and this is a gift from the Silver Surfer, and it's a vase that isn't a vase. It's just water that shapes like it's inside a vase, except the process that makes it do that means that no flowers can ever sit in it because it'll kill them. And that's, that's the chemical that mm-hmm. um, Virginia uses to kill herself. Uh, and it, it like the commentary actually says like, the only question is like, why would someone ever make something like this? Like, why would you make a vase that can't be a vase? Because it'll, it'll, you know, completely and utterly undo the purpose of a vase. Um, and I've thought about it in like the context of art and artistic movements and like, you know, taking something and, and, you know, transitioning its purpose and everything. And Joseph's statements at this point, a little while ago about postmodernism and kind of the inherent cynicism and almost nihilism that comes with it. I am thinking that the vase is consistent with that. It has this nihilism of like, well, it's, it's a vase that's not a vase and it can't be a vase, but it's, it is a vase. Um, and then that is a tool of death and destruction in this story. And I think the hope that, um, that you guys have been talking about is saying like, if you, if you have the nihilism, then you're this postmodern artistic vase that has no purpose that can't serve a purpose. And the hope is more important. Like if you serve this nihilistic postmodernism, then you die. And if you choose to, not do that, then you live and you have the hope that happens after um, Virginia dies. The hope that, that Viv talking to the Scarlet Witch um, ends with. I mean, it's kind of the, you know, that, that uh, Viv statement that parents sacrifice their lives for their children, then children become parents and sacrifice their own lives. So all is sacrificed and nothing is gained. The message is no, everything's gained. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like life is gained. And it's, and, and so it, in a sense, I guess like the, the way I, I take that to the vase is like, well, it, it can't be a vase, but actually it's better than a vase because you don't put flowers in it because the flowers would die, which means you're leaving the flowers alive. <laughs> <laughs> and so is, is that the solution? It's like, I've made the better vase because it means you're not killing. Oh, so interesting. By making it toxic. <laughs> I, I, I was I, not I expecting the life. last, I was not expecting the last step yeah, in your I was argument. Not <laughs> either until... <laughs> Until Joseph turned that page and, and talked about it. It's like, everything's in. Like, oh, well, it means like it means you leave the flowers yeah. alive. So this is a note I had from the very beginning. And I was waiting to see if I was just crazy. But this made me think what maybe the story is really about. I kept noticing visually that this guy, the vision, looks a lot like pink Dr. Manhattan from the Watchmen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does. And I'm and I was sort of thinking, you know, this is interesting. This is like an alternate universe in which a Dr. Manhattan like character doesn't do what Dr. Manhattan had to do to feel okay. You know, and Dr. he just removes himself, he disconnects, he becomes a hermit, he's solipsistic. He's all of the things that are the negative version of this. Vision um and I think there's a line in there about how he fought against his, the coding to become a hero. Like, so, you know, whatever, uh, whatever sort of natural tendencies a man might have, um, in that vision overcame it. And so by the end, because he's just having a conversation with his goofy, weird daughter, and cause I have a 15 year old daughter, the conversation that he has with Viv at the end, 
that's not a weird conversation for somebody to have with their teenage daughter. It's absolutely the same normal conversation I just had with my daughter this week about how everything is weird, <laughs> you know, and teachers and how, you know, how to fit things in. And she, and even today, she, I, I got a text from my wife. She forgot her lunch money and we were having a conversation. Do we let her starve and figure this out on her own? And her French teacher made her a waffle. <laughs> I mean, so, so I kept on like reconnecting to this story, but it's, Vision is Dr. Manhattan who didn't fail, who actually yeah. transcended, but in transcending came back to his humanness. Where Dr. Manhattan just became, oh, uh, I don't even, you know, he's the worst now. Nobody wants to deal with that guy. The vision <laughs> it seems right, so like that, he has re, he actually found that humanity. So in the essay collection we're going to write, guys, <laughs> we're going to need a chapter on Vision and Watchmen. We're going to need a chapter on Chiasmus and Form. We're going to mm-hmm. need a chapter on the character of Virginia. We're going to need a chapter on the objects that are in their house, yeah. right? <laughs> but I, I, like, I definitely want to focus on that face because now that I've gone through that process, I really like it. And I almost want to create like that vase as a, as a thing. And, we had and a, there's we also had... the section on mental health. Like, like the, the, the American family oh, yeah. and mental health would be... An addiction? Oh, yes. Oh, in addiction yeah. to the Victor Mancha. I, like, I kind of over, I, I skimmed over that in the, in the summary, but Victor Mancha is this robot, but he's addicted to a drug. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's a, a metal that vibrates, oh, uh, at a certain frequency right. that calms his nerves. And he, and when it runs out, he, like, goes batty. Yeah, he, he gets ed- <laughs> edgy, like, like a drug. We had a, the, on Sunday, we had, um, sophomore brunch at the college. And, uh, one of my colleagues gave a talk called, um, Dante and beginning again or something like that. And he was talking about Dante and uh, the divine comedy. And he said that one of the patterns of the divine comedy is that first you look, you look in and then you look out and then you look up. So, so first you have to kind of uh, look inward and there has to be some kind of, um, I don't know what Jung would call like individuation or something. So like becoming a, making sure that you're whole on your inside and then you're able to look, outward and you're able to develop friendship and, and then the final step is to look up and to uh, and to ask the big questions right <laughs> about god and the universe and stuff like that i feel like vision kind of goes through uh, a process of that in the story also so that might be another chapter yeah joseph i think you're definitely going to need uh a chapter on like religion just based oh, yeah. on the prayer mm-hmm. and then at least two chapters on morality uh uh one about the like fair versus uh what was the other term nice nice and good oh kind of nice kind of nice fair and and, uh, something not transcendent but um it's preeminent preeminent Preeminent? Mm -hmm. okay yeah fairness versus preeminence and then you also have to have um morality morality and redemption from Mm -hmm. the from the like saving the world 37 times doesn't mean you can lie to the police (laughs) police. To, to save your wife uh, and then also there's the the bigotry, right? There's the kids who do uh, slurs on their garage, and there's the mascot on the football when it's uh, a Native American mascot, but a really stereotypical one. Yeah. Like the, the, the kids' the school Redskins. mascot used to be the Redskins. <laughs> uh, but like the imagery of it is like, think, worse uh, than Chief Wahoo. But <laughs> the Cleveland Indians kind of but also stereotypes. That, like, that's probably not, um, not a mistake because the Vision characters have red, yeah, red uh-huh. skin. 
Oh yeah, um, no. so they're, they're definitely I'm, saying there's a lot of good yeah. essays to be yeah. had in there. I'm comfortable saying very little in this is a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. also the conversation that's, about that's um, right. faith and trust. When she says that uh, mm-hmm. trust, what'd she say? Uh, you have not earned my trust. Oh, about the trust is prediction. Oh, and then also anyone can anyone can yeah. predict the future based on past events. Uh, this is mere pattern recognition, the lowest form of cognition. Trust is the ability to believe without evidence. It is an act of faith, the highest form of cognition. Understanding and embracing faith oh. moves us closer to humanity. <laughs> Good stuff. Oh, and I think there might be something about Shakespeare and Merchant of Venice that could be oh, yeah. pulled. Yeah. From, from there, may, there may be. That's a good sequence. Wow. Yeah. So so that's only, what, a dozen? Yeah, essay ideas. Yeah. Dense, man. There's a lot going on here. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had about a work <laughs> in 150 plus episodes. I... <laughs> yeah. I like, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you guys, like, you're over time. You should just wrap it up because if you don't stop, it's it's never going to stop. Yeah. Any Any final thoughts? I think I've said my piece. <laughs> <laughs> and I've hinted at everything else I would say. So. Do you got anything else? I just want everybody to read this. I have never felt as evangelical about a book in a really long time. I, I love this a lot more after this conversation, and I already loved it a lot. <laughs> okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 89, where we had a really deep conversation about the C.S. Lewis novel, Till We Have Faces, or number 41, in which we discussed Batman with Todd Peterson. And uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and Todd is at Todd Peterson. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have great conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. I think we lost Todd. Todd? You lost me for a sec. Are you back? Oh, Hello? Okay. We're, yeah. We've got you back. We've got you back. Okay. It's okay. All right. I lost you for a second. But okay. Um, it's okay. A lot of that second was probably us waiting for someone to respond to what Joseph said. <laughs> okay.